This is AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovation in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for AMDA On The Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman. Welcome to AMDA On The Go. This podcast will discuss the work of Doctors Without Borders in the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. As Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, and I discussed during the inaugural January 2021 edition of the podcast, Caring on the Go, author Christine Kilgore offered her readers a glimpse of the work that Doctors Without Borders, an organization that has worked in conflict zones and infectious disease outbreaks throughout the world for over 50 years, brought to support the efforts of long-term care facilities and others during the COVID-19 pandemic. She noted that Doctors Without Borders began its work in European nursing homes, but later found a need in the United States. What was that need? What did Doctors Without Borders have to offer the United States? And what was the result? Well, one of the article interviewees, Marina Novak, talked about the Doctors Without Borders educational impact of targeting infection prevention and control for long-term changes. But there was so much more to the effort. And we are so fortunate to have Ms. Novak here with us today to review the greater impact of Doctors Without Borders in the United States. Marina Novak is a nurse, first and foremost, who has worked in a variety of areas in healthcare and the world with different organizations. She has been an Ebola response nurse in Sierra Leone. She has worked with the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and she has a master's in anesthesia and she works as a nurse anesthetist. With Doctors Without Borders, she is the long-term care project coordinator. Ms. Novak, it is my pleasure to welcome you to AMDA On The Go. Thank you so much, Wayne. It's my pleasure to be here. So, Ms. Novak, I typically like to start the podcast with somewhat of a historical framework to set the tone for our discussion. As I was reading the article on the Doctors Without Borders website entitled COVID-19, Our Global Response, I noted this comment specifically about the organization's COVID-19 efforts across the world in over 70 countries. A key priority is to keep our other essential medical programs running in the midst of this new emergency. We have all heard of Doctors Without Borders, a translation from the French with the commonly used abbreviation MSF. I'm not going to try to insult anybody by saying the French (laughs) name, but I know that many of us do not know what its actual mission and objectives are, what it does beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. I know that I didn't. So tell us about the organization. How did it come to be and what does it strive to do for the world? You know, what is its mission and objectives? Yes, thank you for that question, Wayne. Um, As you rightly said, Doctors Without Borders, we usually use our French acronym, MSF, because we were originally founded by a group of French doctors and journalists 
1971. Um, MSF was created on the belief that all people have the right to medical care regardless of their gender, race, religion, creed, or political affiliation, and that most of the needs of these people outweigh the respect for national boundaries. Therefore, we came up with the name Doctors Without Borders. Um, our mission is to direct more effective and timely aid to those who need it most. Uh, we are able to do this mainly by maintaining our financial independence. Um, most of our funding is done by small donations from regular everyday people. This allows us to respond quickly to emergencies without waiting for something like grant funding to come through. Mm. Typically, we respond to emergencies throughout the world in places like conflict zones with disease outbreaks, um, working with displaced people like refugees. This is what are, we typically are known for. Uh, we look to assist excluded and neglected populations, places where no one else is stepping in. Um, it's also been part of our mission and the founding um, journalism aspect of our organization to be able to give a voice to those that we serve and to speak out and advocate for um, those that are marginalized. Um, as you mentioned before COVID hit, we were working in around 70 countries in ongoing emergency contexts. Um, COVID did not stop these emergencies. For example, the war in Yemen is still going on. Um, so it was important for us to address the pandemic while still maintaining our other life-saving programs around the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I was most surprised to hear of the efforts of the MSF in the United States. I naively thought that it only helped developing countries, but that is not true, is it? Um, nope, it's not true. Uh, we have, um, a lot of our work is in developing countries in other places around the world, um, but we have been working in Greece and Sicily for many years in refugee camps there. Um, and yes, in 2020, this was our first time opening up operations in the United States. Wow. Wow. So I know that Doctor Without Borders focuses its efforts, as you said, on vulnerable and marginalized communities. Incredibly, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought to light the disparities in care that exist in the United States. Tell us what brought Doctors Without Borders to the United States. You know, why did it focus efforts in Michigan and Texas long-term care facilities, as well as Native American communities and Puerto Rico? What services did Doctors Without Borders provide that it believed were, were lacking? You know, tell us a little bit, if you can, about the COVID-19 effort here in the U.S. Yes, of course. So we use the same criteria for opening up the projects in the United States as we do for any other place in the world, actually. Um, we look for a population that's being marginalized or neglected and see if we have the expertise to intervene quickly. Um, a typical vulnerable population might be pregnant women and young children under the age of five or refugees in many projects, but that wasn't the case that we all saw with COVID, with COVID the elderly. Um, particularly those in congregate living situations, both in Europe and the United States, were the vulnerable, vulnerable population that we mm. wanted to serve. Mm -hmm. um, infectious disease outbreaks and epidemics is one of our longtime specialties. So we have um, vast experience with responding to disease outbreaks around the world, from Ebola to measles outbreaks in refugee camps. So 
We know infection prevention and control. We know how to cohort patients properly. We know how to do contact tracing. These are some of our specialties. So we found the criteria of um, the population in need of our services, and um, it was in one of our specialty areas. So that is when we decided to intervene. Um, as for why we chose Michigan and Texas, we always look for epidemiological evidence um, where, where we could be most impactful. We knew that we would not be looking to open a large long-term scale project. Uh, we wanted to be efficient with our resources. So going back and looking for marginalized um, populations, we saw racial disparities in Michigan um, mm. where African-Americans make up 14% of the population uh, yet they represented a third of COVID cases and 40% of deaths. So we had similar rationales for intervening in other projects in the United States. Um, and as far as the services within the United States, um, they were limited and supportive mostly, um, with the exception of Puerto Rico, where we did provide some direct medical care and consultations in hard to reach areas on the island. Um, in New York, we supported the homeless with access to showers and hygienic materials. Wow. Um, a lot of the places where, where they would normally go for these services were shut down when COVID first hit, so they didn't have access to those kinds of um, um, facilities. Um, and then in Florida, we served the migrant farm worker population with um, in, uh, infection prevention and control, IPC, I'll say from now on, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. education. And we also did the same for Native American communities in Pueblo and Navajo Nation. And then the bulk of what we did was really provide infection prevention and control support um, in the Detroit and Houston long-term care facilities and some other congregate care settings, such as adult foster care homes. Um, while, we were, yeah, while we were in these facilities, we found um, striking similarities across all the countries we intervened, that mm. they were kind of expected to become makeshift hospitals overnight. Um, they lack the PPE, they lack the staff um, to kind of become this um, makeshift hospital and respond to the COVID pandemic. Uh, so we, we were in a good place to provide um, assistance to them. Um, so we were able to respond quickly with that, with that assistance. Um, mm -hmm. And within our specialty of infection prevention and control, we were able to um, help this neglected healthcare sector. Neglected healthcare sector. Wow, that's a that's a powerful comment. Um, so, with regard to infection prevention and control, specifically in the long term care environment, what does that what does that mean? What 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 actions would would were taking took place. What were the services uh, exactly with regard to infection prevention and control? Yep, that's a great question. So we were able to go into the facilities and provide um, an assessment. Um, well, first of all, when we approached the facilities, a lot of them, especially in the United States, couldn't believe that we would be there providing a service for free without okay. charging them, just wanting to help them without any kind of punitive association involved. Um, we noted a big a culture of, dis, of mistrust mm. um, that a lot of the facilities are used to uh, a lot of guidance, but without a lot of support in implementing this guidance, especially when it comes to infection prevention and control. Mm. So we first had to kind of establish trust with these facilities and allow, allow us in 
to assist them. Um, we specifically wanted to address um, the basics of infection prevention and control. We provided them with an assessment. Um, we ended up using the CDC's ICAR tool, which is what they would be kind of assessed on anyway when um, the um, governing bodies come in to, to look at how they're doing with um, infection prevention and control IPC practices. Mm -hmm. um, and we then develop some targeted training for staff, both the clinical side and the non-clinical side. We found that non-clinical supportive staff, um, such as environmental services, they weren't really always trained on the basics of how the virus spreads and how to protect themselves or how to properly clean the room of a COVID positive patient in the safest way. Um, you know, something simple like it's really human nature to start with the dirtiest area and cleaning first. Um, right. Right. And, you know, make it look good, but it's the worst thing to do in terms of infection prevention and control. Um, so we wanted to help identify these gaps and provide targeted training. We broke the training down into the clinical staff um, and helped them address issues like proper PPE usage and then non-clinical staff. We provided trainings for them separately. Uh, we did some what we called embedding and we kind of provided like one-on-one -on -one support to different members of the team during different hours um, of the day and night to, to kind of give them some one-on-one -on -one training um, and help identify where the further gaps could be. Um, and then we also found um, one thing that is common in these kind of acute stressful situations is that there was a huge need for the mental health, health mm. of the staff. You're right, that's right. So we, we found that there was really a, um, chronic problem of short staffing in many of these facilities um, and it created a stressful work environment chronically and then compounded by the acute um, crisis of the covid pandemic that the mental health of the of these staff on the front line um, was really um, in need as well so we provided some mental health support to the staff of these facilities so it really was a it really was a holistic approach um, for which um, for which resident care was only true was only a part. It was really looking at the entire the entire system or collection of systems that went into caring for the residents. Yeah, it, I mean it's a it's a complex um, issue, and I think what we are finding suggested really that and um, research suggests that infection prevention and control is an area that can. In cross infections in these facilities are, have been a long-term problem. So um, I think that more attention is needed in this area, but um, we at least kind of started the path um, in the United States for this work, hopefully wow. to continue to be improved and um, done. And, and I mean, online mo modules were, are great in some cases, but um, just the, the basics really always need to be addressed too. the environment, the EVS staff, they need um, specific training too. And sometimes online modules, they feel the, you know, the boots on the ground, the, the feedback from them is that sometimes they just feel like they're drowning in online modules and maybe they're not always getting the most out of that training. Wow. wow. And now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, 
post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. We are speaking with Marina Novak, the Doctors Without Borders Project Coordinator for Long-Term Care, about the Doctors Without Borders response to COVID-19 in the United States. You know, Ms. Novak, I, I want to kind of segue off our off our last question. Um, a central motivation of the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, AMDA, has always been what can we teach or discuss today that we can put into action by as I like to call them, our Joe Amdas in the trenches, our providers, <laughs> our providers in the community. What can we put in action tomorrow? So you kind of touched upon this, but you know, uh, uh, clearly, education is a major pillar within the mission of the MSF. Uh, you know, was the organization in the environments that it served in the United States able to create uh, an environment of sustainability after it left the facilities? You know, what what actionable steps are these facilities able to accomplish, or actually any facility in the country able to accomplish both now and looking to the future that was put into place or facilitated by the MSF? Um, sure. So a large part of our work is done by local um, or national staff. Um, in other countries, we call the, um, the locals national staff. But since we're talking about the United States, we tried to hire also locals um, to work for us. Um, actually, the international staff is usually less than 10% of um, the staff in our projects around the world. Hmm. Um, so we focus on hiring locally whenever it's possible and training those that we hire. Um, in the case of this project in the long-term care facilities, um, we also were able to develop an actionable infection prevention and control toolkit, which is free and publicly available to download. Um, and we would like to see schools of nursing continue the work that we started and carry out this um, IPC toolkit. We have um, schools that we were able to work with in Detroit that are utilizing this resource for nursing students um, and supporting staff in the facilities that we were visiting in Detroit as well. And um, moving forward, um, nursing and public health students, both undergraduate and graduate nursing students, they can practically learn IPC while simultaneously improving the practices in the facilities within their communities. Um, we believe that that would be a good sustainable way forward to improving these facilities and also to get students um, learning um, ways to improve IPC and also keep themselves safe before graduating 
Uh, and then on the mental health side, we've compiled an actionable toolkit as well, which we are trying to get into the hands of schools of social work so that they, their students can um, implement that side and provide a support to staff of different facilities as well. I love the parity in, um, in both traditional medical support and behavioral medicine support uh, as well. And I, and I really appreciate the fact that essentially the MSF is saying, you know, you don't have to get your master's in public health to understand global situations um, and an ever-present um, issue with regard to infection prevention and control. It can really be instituted within educational environments, right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Amazing. Um, so, Ms. Novak, as has become customary in the time that we have remaining, I typically like to be somewhat provocative with my guests, but not too much, so don't get nervous. I, <laughs> I have to ask you, um, almost as if it's an elephant in the room, was it a surprise to you, others, or the MSF, Doctors Without Borders, as a whole, that the United States, a country with such immense healthcare potential, such immense expenditures, and such an abundance of resources, needed the efforts of Doctors Without Borders as well? Is there a bigger picture comment well beyond the COVID-19 pandemic that needs to be addressed around the marginalized communities and disparities uh, in care that occur in the United States today, especially in the care of our frailest members, um, those in long-term care? Well, I would say definitely yes, but one point that might not um, always be thought about is that if I had cancer, I would definitely want to be treated in the United States or Europe. Um, but during disease, a disease outbreak, there are other parts of the world that are used to dealing with this and possibly better prepared to quickly spring into proper IPC action. Hmm. Um, in my own schooling, for example, as um, a nurse in the United States, I had worked in different contexts within the U.S. and I signed up to work with MSF and I left for Sierra Leone um, and I was dealing with patients that possibly had hemorrhagic fevers. On um, our training in the United States, I, I felt wasn't adequately preparing me for um, that kind of work. Um, wow. I was actually taught by nurses in Sierra Leone, my colleagues there, that wearing my wristwatch from patient to patient is probably not the best idea. Before mm. that, it hadn't necessarily occurred to me and plenty of people in the United States wear their wristwatches um, in hospitals and facilities. So I'm really grateful for MSF for teaching me proper IPC practices. And I've carried that with me um, through, since my first experience with them um, as a nurse in Sierra Leone. Um, but then there is also this issue within the United States when it comes to how we might be treating our most vulnerable, um, the elderly. Are we doing the best we can? Are we treating them, those that work tirelessly there in the facilities well enough? Um, why are they short-staffed? Um, other, other questions, are the environmental services staff prepared and protected enough? Um, for me, uh, this crisis really raised some fundamental questions mm. um, that I can't start, stop thinking about when it comes to um, infection prevention and control and the safety um, of, of the most vulnerable and frail in this country. 
as well as those that are caring for them. And I can assure you that at least from the AMDA, from our society's point of view, we are looking at that too. And we are making, uh, I think, some nice inroads into what the future might look like in a much, in a much better way. Um, it has been a privilege to speak with and learn from uh, Marina Novak, the long-term care project coordinator for Doctors Without Borders, who had a significant impact in the COVID-19 response uh, within, uh, within the United States. Uh, Ms. Novak, thank you very much for spending your time with AMDA On The Go. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you so much. References for this podcast can be found at paltc.org backslash podcast, caringfortheages.com, and www.doctorswithoutborders.org. Until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for this innovation podcast that we call AMDA On The Go. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our new learning management system at apex.paltc.org. Click on podcast and follow the link to this latest episode. Thank you.